everybody. Welcome back to the Carbon Trace Productions podcast. I'm your host, Katie. If this is your first time joining us, the Carbon Trace Productions podcast is where you can learn about documentaries that we've done, humanitarian spotlights, um, just all of our projects, new ones, old ones, everything in between. You can tune into this episode and our previous episodes on our Spotify under Carbon Trace Productions or on our website, carbontrace.net. And for more information about like our nonprofit mission, projects, donations, volunteer opportunities, newsletter, all that stuff, uh, that's also on our website, carbontrace.net. For this episode, we're going to start off talking about a recently completed project titled A Vietnam Peace Story. If you haven't heard about this documentary before, A Vietnam Peace Story follows a group of Marine veterans as they share their stories from that time and even revisit some of those places. So I'm super excited right now to have the opportunity to talk to Dr. Andy Klein, the director of A Vietnam Peace Story. Andy, thank you so much for being here. How have you been? Uh, Pretty good, I guess. So I understand the film was only recently completed, and so I haven't seen much of it myself yet, but what kind of gave you the idea to do this documentary in the first place? Like, how did that come up? Well, like a lot of things, it just kind of actually dropped in our lap. So a fellow by the name of Gary Harlan was going to make a second trip back to Vietnam to uh, visit a... um, particular battle site. Uh, He had gone back to Vietnam in 96 when the country first reopened uh, to Americans and had a profound experience and so wanted to uh, make another trip and take some of the uh, fellow Marines who were in his unit, particularly to visit a battle site, Hill 50 in uh, Quang Nai province, where 10 of his uh, unit were killed. And so he went looking for a documentary filmmaker. He actually, on the first trip that he'd made in 96, uh, Mark Biggs, who uh, used to be department head of uh, media journalism and film here at Missouri State and then was an associate dean in the College of Arts and Letters, uh, Mark is a documentary filmmaker and actually uh, went on that uh, trip. So I guess Gary was used to having documentary filmmakers follow him around. <laughs> okay, so he went looking for uh, for somebody to do this, and uh, I was actually his third choice. So um, yay that I that I you know finally got contacted and got to go. Was it kind of hard to pull together? You mentioned traveling and visiting, and I know when exactly did you do the bulk of that? Was I know people are kind of tired of hearing about coronavirus, but how did that pose any challenges? No, because this was long before coronavirus. This was March of 19. Okay, so uh, a when full the trip year happened. before. Yes, and in, yes, a full year of before. And what had um, occurred is that the, the men who were going, there were seven of them, they all came to Springfield for a few days, uh, and we had preliminary interviews at that time. This would have been February, okay. uh, maybe early February. And then the trip was uh, roughly the first two weeks of March. So the entirety of the filming 
occurred the few days that they were here before we went and then the two weeks that we were in Vietnam. How long would you say production took, like post-production? Well, post-production was unfortunately not as smoothly handled as I would have liked. My goal was a finished film by fall of 19. Oh, so you got delayed like a year. Yes, we did. And that was uh, mostly my fault. I put too much work and pressure on a, uh, a student editor. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, it didn't quite work out. So we had to find another editor and did. And in fact, it was a recent grad who had the time uh, to actually film. And that was the problem. It wasn't that the, the student editor wasn't good mm-hmm. or, or not capable. Or what. It's, this particular student was very popular, very much in demand, very talented, uh, was eager to do the project, but it just was it just was too much. I should have taken it away much earlier than I did, but I was trying to let this student, you know, have every opportunity to do the project. And so now it, in the end, uh, it wasn't a problem because the, um, the film was completed in the way that I wanted it to be completed. The editor did the work I wanted done, and I'm very happy with the result. That's good. Can you kind of walk us through like everything that happened and give us kind of a preview into what we can expect to see in the film? The film is about the sort of psychological journey from Vietnam as a war to Vietnam as a place and a people. For folks my age and older, I I had a draft card, but the war would have had to have lasted a couple more years before I would have been in any danger of going. Well, for people my age and and younger, when you hear the word Vietnam, you just tack on the word war, right? I mean, it was, you know, we watched it every, it was like, it was on television every night and and the protests and the the strife that it caused in our our country. And so Gary, uh, when he first contacted me about this and we got to talking about it, uh, he said an interesting thing that really... I knew was going to be the story. He he was the one, the first one to introduce me to the idea that when you go back as as a person for whom Vietnam is a war, when you go to Vietnam today, right, and you you come back and it's no longer a war, it's a place and a people. And that's actually a rather profound sort of psychological journey to take. And for folks such as himself, you know, former Marines, that's a big journey to take, right? Uh, Not so much for me, although I felt it too. You know, I came away, you know, the the Vietnamese are lovely people. It's a beautiful country. The food is great. Culture is fascinating. Um, I want to go back for vacation just as soon as I possibly can. Um, I just really, really enjoyed it. I wasn't carrying the same baggage that those Marines, those former Marines were carrying. So that's that's what it's about. And and I believe we captured it. Yes, it's a very emotional film because I, I believe we captured the story that we, we set out to capture, which is what is this inner journey really look and feel like? I've got goosebumps just hearing you talk about it. I hope that's what the viewers get out of it too, and I'm I'm sure they will. You said there were seven people? Did any of them, due to the nature of it, were any of them kind of unsure if it was something they wanted to do? 
or were they all pretty eager to see what would happen? Well, there's a wide range. I mean, one of the things that we do, the first act of the film, basically, is the, um, the pre-trip interview. And this is one of the things we ask them, is why do you want to go back? And, and all seven of them had very different answers to that. There was uh, one person who was reluctant to go back. But because he was involved in a particularly harrowing incident on Hill 50 that involved the platoon commander and his saving of the platoon commander's life. Oh, wow. The platoon commander who went, Gene Cleaver, requested that Doc Ryerson, the person I'm talking about, go. Uh, and the reason is because Doc Ryerson and Gary Harlan were the two people that saved um, uh, Gene Cleaver's life, and Gene has no memories of the day. Right. I mean, he came within, you know, a cat's whisker yeah. of dying on Hill 50. And so Doc Ryerson, um, Don Ryerson, they, they call the Navy corpsman Doc because that's what the Navy corpsmen are. They're the medics, right? So they all have the nickname Doc. And two of them went along. So when you see the film, you know, there's you know, Doc Ryerson and Doc Hastrider, right? So... Um, so that was a great thing for him to do because he, he really didn't want to. But because of the role he played in a, in a particularly harrowing incident on Hill 50, he did go back. And I, I think all of them had a profound experience. And all of them came to particular understandings of the Vietnamese people in Vietnam that are something better than, you know, memories of the war. Um, Gene Cleaver... <clears throat> He tells the story in the film. He's the platoon commander, and he said, "You know, uh, we were, you know, they were they were held down by fire." And he said, "We had to get up that hill." And and he said, "The only way I knew how to get up that hill was to stand up and tell everybody we've got to get up that hill." And of course, what he did, he was shot. And then uh, Doc Ryerson came to his aid, and while uh, Doc Ryerson was was working on him. A Vietnamese soldier came up behind him, fired, hit Doc Ryerson in the back, but it hit his shovel, his entrenching tool. It blew a hole in the entrenching tool, which he brought to the interview and showed us, right? Knocked him flat. Well, before the Vietnamese soldier got another shot off, Gary Harlan showed up and and took care of this guy and then, uh, and then started giving Gene mouth to mouth. I mean, it's, you know... That's terrifying. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, one of the guys that went, Bob Deddy, uh, who was a Marine rifleman, you know, your standard 18-year-old enlistee. A lot of these guys uh, said that they enlisted in the Marine Corps because they didn't want to get drafted. Mm-hmm. You get drafted into the Army, I guess, and the Marines are a different things. So Bob was crying even before he sat down in front of the cameras. We were interviewing another one of the guys, and we had a room where we were doing these interviews. There was a room just off a ways, kind of a glassed-in office. And he came in, and he sat down in that room by himself, and you could see he was in tears even before he sat down for the interview. And he, and he sat down for the interview, and he couldn't even introduce himself before the uh, tears came. You know, there were reasons for this. One of the primary reasons for this was that, that 
he was involved in an incident. This is something that took place sometime after Hill 50. Uh, Bob actually wasn't at Hill 50. He, he was a replacement who'd can't come in some weeks after, after that battle. There was uh, his best friend in the unit, a uh, guy by the name of Charles Alexander, was killed, and I think Bob is suffering survivor's guilt because of it. He's the, uh, as he says, he's the only le one left from his fire team. At the time, uh, uh, Charles Alexander was in a different fire team. Something they, you know, they they moved around. They they were in the same fire team for a while, and then it. Well, there a patrol came up, and um, Bob's fire team was going to lead the patrol, and they had uh, apparently led like five or six patrols in a row. And so Bob requested that his fire team not lead that particular patrol. He just he said he said he only laid down two patrols in his entire tour of duty, and that was one of them. Well, Alexander's fire team was put lead into the into the patrol and Alexander was was shot and killed and so you know Bob you know had some survivor guilt for that which you which you, I mean it was just right you could just see and hear you know and he was uh, Bob was interesting he was among among the seven of them they were they were all forthright with their storytelling but he was brutally forthright with his storytelling and um but as the trip began to unfold we paid very careful attention to bob because we felt like of the seven of them he was the one likely to have the most profound experience and and in fact did because in the final interview that we did before leaving vietnam he was a rock there was, I mean, continued to speak forthrightly about his experiences both at the time in Vietnam and in and, and processing what had happened to him in country. No tears, no, no fear, no trepidation, no guilt, no nothing. He was a rock. He was a guy who'd had a trip to Vietnam and it was a great experience. He'd made the journey, he'd made the inner journey. That's a pretty big step to take. That's not something you easily let go of. Obviously, he kept it. He's kept it with him for all these years, and all of them have. So, I think it's really beautiful that you are able to bring those stories forward. I think, especially with everything going on today, I think it's really important that more people uh, get to see that that it doesn't get forgotten. Um, so I know not to not to jump around, but um, you did finish this project. Um, what like last December? So like three-ish months ago, probably. And it's I know it's in some festivals now. Uh, when do you think this will be available for for people to get to see? Well, I hope this spring. If if we get really lucky and the vaccine works and the distancing and the mask wearing all works, you know, maybe maybe uh, we'll be able to get it uh, further distributed come summer, early fall. And uh, how you know how we'll do that at the moment, I don't don't quite know. I want to see what happens with festivals. I mean, I'd love it if somebody pick it up for distribution. Yeah, that'd be really cool. That'd be nice. Um, 
you know, we uh, witnessed at Torneo, we self-distributed and had a lot of success uh, at that. Um, our, our creative uh, director, Shane Franklin, was uh, uh, solely responsible for that uh, success. I mean, it was 50 cities, I think. Do you think a Vietnam peace story could get that big? Oh, I'd be nice, you know, if we do our jobs well. <laughs> uh, Shane does his job well again, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, yeah, I think I, I think so. I think, you know, we're getting better with every film. Well, I, for one, am really excited to see a Vietnam peace story in its entirety uh, as soon as possible. I think, I hope, a lot of our viewers are just as excited as we are about it. You've given me so many great stories and so much insight. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks. Yeah. I would like to take a minute now just to give a special thanks to our patrons on Patreon. Uh, Carbon Trace Productions is made possible by the support of viewers like you tuning into our podcast episodes and checking out all of our videos and everything. Uh, if you'd like to join us on our journey and gain access to like sneak peeks of projects, merchandise, free VIP tickets to some of our pay-per-view films, and so, so much more. You can become a member of our Patreon for as little as $5 a month. Uh, you can find us at patreon.com slash carbontrace. to introduce our next guest. Joining me now is Michael Mayrand, who was the producer of Songs from the Street, a student documentary that came out last spring in 2020. For those who may not have heard of it or seen it yet, Songs from the Street's main focus is on the Springfield Street Choir, which is a local choir completely made up of members of Springfield's homeless community. Uh, Springfield Street Choir provides a safe space with opportunities for the local homeless community to grow and have their voices heard. Um, Michael, thank you so much for being here today. How have you been? I've been good. So I had the opportunity to watch Songs from the Street in its entirety, and it really touched my heart. So what gave you the idea to create this documentary? and bring attention to the street choir? Like, how did you find out about it? Kind of a funny story behind that. So basically, I want to say a little over a year ago, uh, when I first got involved with Carpentrace, uh, I was in one of Andy Klein's classes, and he was like, hey, you know, every Tuesday we have meetings with, uh, at the uh, Mud Lounge downtown. And so I went, just, you know, kind of out of the blue, see what was up. And then I, I would go in and I talked to like Shane, uh, Shannon, Andy, 
get to know them all a little a little better. And then they're like, hey, we have this project going on. And I'm like, cool, I'd love to help. And they're like, yeah, like, what do you do? I'm like, uh, I want to produce. I'm like, cool, uh, want to be, like, lead producer on this project? And I'm like, uh, sure, yeah. Like, I, I was, it was kind of like that uh, fake it till you make it mindset. Oh, yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. But it was a great learning experience, and I learned a lot along the way, and it made a, uh, <laughs> and I don't, I don't want to cuss, uh, make a cool project. Um, basically they gave me the pitch for it, like while I was there for that first initial meeting and I was like, yeah, like this is a really cool concept idea to get behind. And so after that, we started assembling the crew and, uh, started pre-production and I think it was November that we, uh, first started filming and it was just a super cool enlightening experience because, you know, I'd never really seen that side of uh life before you know people who are always riding the edge between poverty homelessness people who have been homeless for literal decades years you know it's a very hard life to live so for any viewers who may not be familiar with it what can you tell us about the street choir itself and what the documentary has captured okay so uh basically uh, the Springfield Street Choir is a choir made up entirely of homeless people, you know, here in the community. Uh, it's ran by this church called the, called the uh, Connecting Grounds. Um, their lead pastor, Christy Love, uh, a lot of people in charge of are cool, you know, Katie Kring, uh, Kenny Kaback, you know, some of the choir directors, very cool, very good people. And basically, uh, this choir, it was uh, set up, like, shortly before we started um filming and you know creating our movie it was very very young we, we were there for one of their very first performances and um their, their whole idea was that anyone can join and you know they, they didn't set out to solve homelessness with this choir they just wanted to give these people who you know were struggling you know at that probably at the rock bottom most of the time just trying to give them something to put their focus on and give them a little happiness and so we set out uh, following the choir itself and some of what we felt like its most notable members, uh, following them, getting their stories, trying to, you know, bridge an understanding between where they are now and where they were before they became homeless and who they can still be and who they want to be in the future. And the choir had a really big effect on these people. You know, a lot of them say that they, they wouldn't be the same without the choir, and then it gives them a sense of community that they never felt they had before. New friendships, except for some new relationships. I know there are one or two that end up like coupling up. You know, really, really cute. You love to see that. Um, but overall, yeah, it was just a really enlightening. It, sorry, <laughs> really enlightening experience. Uh, just learning about this whole community of people and their struggles, and you know, there's. Homeless people have no age. They have no, you know, certain occupation, no certain mindset that leads them to where they are. It's so many different things that have happened to them. Some, like some of them are uh, teenagers who have been on the street for years because of abusive families. Some of them, you know, former recovering current drug addicts. Some of them just hit some bad luck. You know, it's it's really hard to like really narrow down one cause for it. There's just so much. Okay, so you said you followed the stories of a couple different people. How many people would you say we really get to like meet in the film? Was was anybody hesitant to open up? 
Uh, many of them were reluctant at first to give us their stories because, you know, we were strangers. You know, a lot of a lot of the people in this community, they it took them time to even trust the uh, the choir directors and like Chrissy Love in the church. And so, you know, imagine, you know, you're just like doing this choir thing every week. And then all of a sudden these, you know, TV people come in and, you know, uh, the the media doesn't have like too great of a reputation right now. And so these people were probably like, oh, like, what are these people doing here? You know, they're, they're probably used to people, like, making them look bad in the news because people try to pre- treat homeless people like they're, like they're a problem, like they're not people, you know? And so it took us time to kind of gain, gain their trust, you know, learn more about them, treat them with respect, you know, first and foremost. Because mm-hmm. a, a lot of people don't do that, and, it's, you know, it's, it's rough to see that. But, uh, like, I, I remember talking to some of my favorite people that we interviewed, James, JR, uh, Paul, they had some really uh, emotional and very, uh, just very evocative stories, you know, especially like Paul, like learning about him living his whole life in Springfield, being a recovering drug addict, you know, battling mental illness, you know, like this, this whole journey that he's been taken on and how the choir has allowed him to step up as a leader, you know, Jr. uh, this kid who's, you know, lived most of his teenage years, like, you know, on the streets homeless, you know, I, I don't want to, uh, delve too much into that because, you know, I don't want to, well, <laughs> it's already out there in the film, but, um, yeah, like Jr. he, he he states in the film that his, you know, he was being abused by family and no one would do anything about it. And so he decided to leave. And James, who, you know, his story is very interesting, too. But just to uh, summarize it, he was, you know, he was moving through Missouri. And then his stuff got stolen and he just kind of got stuck here. And then, you know, the, you know, life on the streets is rough and can take you to dark places from what I've learned. It's, uh, <laughs> there, there's such a wide variety of stories that are told. It's it's hard to think of like just one or two that really just resonated the most. But if I really had to pick, those would be the like, three that I really felt were the most impactful to me personally. Do you think you'd maybe revisit these people and this project in the future? Like, is that something you'd be interested in doing? Uh, yeah, I think I would like to do that. I know um, after the film came out uh, a few months later, we we did a short little follow up series uh, catching up with. Um, you know, JR, Paul, uh, some of the choir directors, uh, just kind of like doing like a, you know, where are they at, where are they now type of thing. And it's really cool to see, uh, like, you know, for example, uh, JR and Paul, you know, they have, you know, they're back on their feet. They're, you know, doing wonderful things with their life, lots of outreach, lots of personal development, which is all we really hope for is that these, you know, these people that we followed and grew connections with would, be able to better their lives and you know eventually not be homeless anymore but we would def- I would definitely like you know years maybe even months to like do something like that to kind of get a sense of where everyone is at now and how the choir itself is doing too so I just am curious how did this experience impact you did anything maybe exceed your expectations or uh, the experience definitely uh, exceeded my expectations, you know, uh, and I, I would say every sense of the word, you know, for me at least, it was very much a trial by fire as producer, learning learning the ropes, um, onset, offset, just kind of trying to apply these 
lessons taught to me like by Shane, Shane and Andy, very you know, practically as best as I could. You know, I, I definitely like made made some mistakes along the way, but I feel like this project was very instrumental in me, you know, really establishing like what I want to do as a filmmaker, and forging the connections with my, you know, the crew and learning all these various different aspects about documentary filmmaking that I really had no idea about beforehand. You know, I'd never before this project considered even making a documentary film. And, you know, here I am sitting here, you know, it's definitely like a project I think for a long time I'll, I'll cite as one of like my favorite, most, you know, impactful pieces. And, uh, yeah, uh, I would say it was an awesome experience, a very stressful experience, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it, it was all worth it, you know? Um. I was going to ask like about notable moments, but I think you already kind of touched on that a bit. So instead, I'm just going to ask, like, is there anything since you have such so much to show in such a short amount of time? Is there anything that didn't make it in the final cut of the film that you wish would have made it in? Man, that's that's a difficult question because we we spent so much time capturing so much. And it's like I'm sitting here trying to think about you know, what, like, what did end up on the cutting board? Because it was very difficult for us to, um, you know, like, especially like in, the, in, the, in the editing process to really decide, like, what we felt could be cut. Because there was a lot of content, especially with their interviews and our, our followings did for some of the members that were very, um, very impactful. You know, I, I felt was really good content to showcase uh, what the message we were trying to get across. Um I would I, I guess if I had to choose maybe just like um m maybe more time like actually like following uh, some of the like some more choir members on the street like I wish I wish we could have talked to more of them especially a lot of like the female members of the choir because we didn't we didn't have uh too many opportunities I know we talked a little bit to uh people like characters like um uh, Wildflower I say character because she was a very unique person like uh, her person, her personality was wild in a very fun and eccentric way. Like she was one of my favorite people to talk to. Um, yeah, I wish I wish we definitely could have uh, got more of a diverse picture when it came to the homeless population. Because I you know we talked to Jr., who you know he's one of the youngest members of the homeless population. Um, but I definitely wish we could have uh, had the opportunity to talk to more people from you know a lot more like diverse backgrounds to get a more complete picture of the fact that, you know, it doesn't matter who you are or what you are, you can still become homeless. You know, this can still be your, your reality. I think that's a really good point. Uh, people usually, when they see a, a person of the homeless community, automatically assume the worst without ever considering that it could happen to them. Like, it's, like, it's not legit unless it's happening to me sort of thing. So that said, um, what's something that you hope viewers can take away from songs from the street or something that you just wish people understood more in general though i i do hope they see the film i hope that viewers can take away um i hope the viewers can take away the fact that you know the homeless population here everywhere like the they are people we have a you have a way, in, on a, i would say a societal level of dehumanizing and just kind of like pushing these people to the side because of, you know, the station where they're at in life. You know, like think, for example, think about how cities institute, uh, uh, 
I forget the term for it, but like aggressive like benches and stuff like that, like uh, like a- like anti-homeless uh, benches. Yeah, architecture. Yeah, that's that's the word. <laughs> um, but yeah, like um, stuff like that, like in New York, how they institute um, architecture like that to where you know they don't want homeless people to be able to sleep there or sit there comfortably, and they remove benches in the subway so homeless people don't have a place to sit down. Like it's it's messed up. Like instead of actively seeking out solutions, I think cities and go- like local governments that a lot of times they like to just kind of just push it under the rug. You know, it's kind of like you know, have a soup kitchen, have a soup kitchen or two, and then call it a day. Have like a homeless shelter here, call it a day. When a lot of the problems that we do face that cause homelessness are on a much deeper level, and I hope that viewers can see this film and then be inspired to participate in outreach and uh, talk to their local city, state governments about creating a real, you know, broad change, like. Uh, like outreach on the local level is great, fantastic, but we can't deny that there are some systemic problems that are leading to, you know, such high homeless populations in our, you know, our big cities. Especially like here in Springfield, we have several thousand homeless people, that right now living here. You know, like struggling to survive. It's messed up. Uh, I remember one thing that uh, one of the choir directors, I think it was uh, Kitty Crane, brought up was uh, Kitty Crane and Christy Love. But um, it might have been both of them. But it was our, our buses and how Springfield has a terrible bus system. And, like, how – I remember they talked about, like, how hard it is for homeless people to, like, pick them up – pick themselves up by their bootstraps, as, you know, uh, so, some people like to say and, you know, make a life for themselves. But it's like there are so many different factors with that. Like, for example, if uh, if someone were to get a job at uh, McDonald's and they have them working the night shift and, you know, they were homeless and th- they were just starting this job, let's say, like, after they get off work, you know, they, they're trying to take the bus. They want to take the bus to get home or wherever they're staying. They can't because the buses, like, stop running after a certain hour. Or they don't go to this place and that place. You know, I'd, I, I don't have all the details, but I would definitely recommend um, – you know, doing more research into outreach and um, it's like talking to your local lawmakers about making big changes. You know, like I don't, I don't, I don't have the knowledge to have give you all the answers, but I hope the, I hope viewers go out and find those answers for themselves and hopefully make a difference. Having seen songs from the street myself already, I definitely think you achieved the message you were going for. Um, and you did also mention just now about like outreach. So aside from things like contacting government officials and things like that, is there anything that you can think of that the average person could do on their own to help? Uh, in terms of outreach, uh, first and foremost, I would recommend, um, you know, going to uh, the Connecting Grounds, uh, the church's website and reading what they have about uh, outreach and how you can how you can participate on a local level. But uh, first thing comes to my head is um, it's like really just like not not even like not just your congressman like even like your local governments too like I think I don't think we give enough stock to uh, how much like local government really affects us on a day to day level especially like here in Springfield um, and I think I think it would be good uh, political level to you know talk to your local lawmakers talk to the people you know who um, 
who put who you know the big businesses and local lawmakers to get them behind these programs and you know start creating more homeless shelters and you know creating plans to eliminate homelessness and investing in these you know new programs coming out here like uh, Eden Village for example here in Springfield and um, on a smaller personal level I would say just volunteering you know uh, donating food and your time to help these people that's that's the best thing I can tell you on a personal level you can do is just create awareness you know go to your local homeless route outreach programs or churches and just help that's that's the best thing I can recommend on the personal level I think that's all really good advice actually especially for somebody who you know may not have thought about this kind of thing much before um, and I'm looking over the talking points that I had and you've pretty much already covered everything so where can our viewers access songs from the street to watch it themselves um, if you do want to view the film and you haven't seen it yet uh, we are right now we're going through a festival circuit but I know that once we're uh, through festivals we'll be um, uploading the film to uh, Vimeo and I know we're planning on possibly having like some online screenings and we also plan here locally in Springfield to have more showings for example um, right now I'm in talks with the like uh, Missouri State University to uh, have a showing like, on campus and hopefully um, within the next few months we'll have more local showings at you know theaters um, churches you know hopefully like more you know here at uh, MSU uh, and if you want to like uh, buy a blu-ray we uh, right now if you donate like thirty dollars to carbon trace um, we have a limited supply but we are uh, giving away blu-rays to people who donate like 30 bucks and then if we have uh, a good turnout with that then we'll you know hopefully be able to order more and then get more out to the people so they can watch the movie um, on, on another note I, we're still uh, figuring out uh, our, our you know more farther future plan but you know stay tuned stay updated follow us on all the uh, you know, social media channels like uh, Facebook and Twitter, and we'll keep you guys updated as we figure that stuff out and, you know, get plans made and have showings ready to premiere. Okay, well, that's awesome. Um, I hope the festivals are going well, and I'm excited for more people to get to see it soon. Um, you've given so much great information and made some really good points, and I'm really happy that I've had the opportunity to talk with you today. So thank you so much. I, I appreciate you taking the time to be here. Well, thank you for having me. As we wrap up now, I just want to give another thanks to everyone again for tuning in to this month's episode, which was produced and edited by me, Catherine Saltkill. Um, I want to give another very special thanks to all of our guests, Andy Klein, Michael Marriand, 
If any of you listeners out there enjoyed this episode and want to know more about a Vietnam peace story or songs from the street, and I highly recommend you do, um, you can check them out on our website, carbontrace.net. That is also where you can learn about some of our other projects, new ones, old ones, and find things like our newsletter and volunteer opportunities and so much more. Uh, Again, our website is carbontrace.net. And don't forget you can stay updated with us through our Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Vimeo, and YouTube. They're all under the same name, Carbon Trace Productions. And our new Snapchat that we started this semester, Carbon underscore Trace. That's all I've got for you guys today, so thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you guys again next time.